Welcome to another evidence-based radio coming to you, sadly still from quarantine. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Apologies if you missed me last week. Sometimes life intrudes on uh, my preferred hobbies. <laughs> and so um, I was just really swamped with overtime and everything else. So um, yeah. Let's first take a moment to talk about the terrible hurricane, uh, Hurricane Laura, that just slammed into Louisiana, especially in the corner of Texas, uh, where it's killed at least six people in Louisiana and continues to uh, move towards the Northeast, um, just across the country, and is doing just terrible damage. Previously, the storm, which is the earliest 13th storm of the season, uh, so it's the first time that they've reached a 13th storm before September, and so it had previously sliced through the Caribbean, hitting Puerto Rico, which is obviously still hurting from Hurricane Maria, as well as the island of Hispaniola, where it killed 20 people in Haiti, which is also still recovering from that earthquake uh, several years ago, um, because they, their entire uh, infrastructure was basically destroyed then, and also killed three people in the Dominican Republic. So it was a really big storm. Um, we won't know the extent of damage for some time here um, in America and also in the uh, islands. Uh, we can only hope that it won't be as bad as Katrina, which, I mean, some people are still trying to recover from Katrina. Um, it hit a slightly different part of the coastline, so it's not the same exact people who are being uh, hit by uh, this storm that were hit by Katrina, but still. And so the hurricane was headed inland, as I noted. It's expected to do damage in Arkansas and probably has been going through Arkansas um, this afternoon. And then it will be swinging theoretically towards the mid-Atlantic states. Now, it's not currently projected to reach landfall in New England, but it is going to pass pretty close to the coast, which means that um, Boston and the Cape might get some damage due to the winds coming off of the hurricane um, because they do um, go clockwise, counterclockwise. Um, or they go clockwise, sorry. Um, <laughs> after my Coriolis effect uh, <laughs> scenarios. Um, so even though it's off the shore, there's still that sweeping around of the wind, the damaging winds. And, um, so hopefully it won't be too bad. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that this is another tragedy that will almost certainly increase the death toll from COVID-19 as many residents were forced to flee in local government supplied buses. At least they had that. Um, but of course, being in close quarters with people, um, especially people who, 
kind of just grabbed stuff and ran uh, might not be the best of scenarios. And as we know, the hardest hit people will inevitably be the poorest and least resilient among our population. Thousands are without power and water. Downed power lines have even set some houses on fire, adding insult to injury. It's it's bad. Um, I mean, it's a predictable but terrible event. Um, and it may not be the last of the season, which stretches well into September. So um, I know it's a lot. Uh, it's a lot for me to to sort of add yet another thing to the pile of things that have already been happening. And so I think that, you know, we sometimes talk about compassion fatigue, but I think it's really important that we need to pressure our government to actually have a good response to this um, situation and not to repeat the mistakes of Katrina, um, especially since a lot of this is rural, heavily African-American territory that this hurricane has been going through. And as we know, our government doesn't have the best track record with helping out those populations. Um, so I just want to, uh, remind you that we do need to play a part by really putting our voices, uh, together and demanding that the people who are affected by this are actually helped and are helped in a reasonable and quick fashion. All right, let's, let's move on now. Um, let's move on to our sort of regularly scheduled stories. Um, we're not going to have quite as much of a flow as I have the first, the last couple of weeks. Um, I didn't find enough stories for a clear theme throughout the entire, uh, show, but we've got a couple of different smaller themes. Um, so let's start with some archaeological stories. Our first study looks at the remains of a grass bed that is some 20 thousand year 200,000 excuse me 200,000 years old south african archaeologists discovered rudimentary beds made of grass and ash from stone age inhabitants of the region we report the discovery of grass bedding used to create comfortable areas for sleeping and working by people who lived in border cave at least 200,000 years ago declared the authors of a new study published today in Science. Located in the Lebombo Mountains, Border Cave is a rock shelter near the border of South Africa and Eswatini, formerly Swaziland, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but I'm doing my best. Um, so it was occupied intermittently by humans between 227 thousand and one thousand years ago and it actually looks like a really beautiful place honestly it's this lovely uh sort of mountain face covered in vegetation and there's this rock shelter which is really more of a cave um it just doesn't have it's just open at the end so that's why they sort of call it a rock rock shelter um and so it actually looks like a pretty good place for early hominids and early people to have hung out. Like I certainly would approve. Um, if I were an, if I were an early, uh, homo sapien, I think that cave would be a pretty good place to, uh, hang out. 
Um, and so, like I said, it's, it's on a, it's sort of half, halfway up the mountain. So it's seems like it's pretty easily defensible and yeah, uh, not a bad place to live if you're living in the, uh, Paleolithic. And so this bedding is the oldest in the archaeological record now. The previous oldest bedding was a mere 77,000 years old. Um, And that also came from um, South Africa, from the uh, Sibiru region of South Africa. And so in addition to the bedding, the shelter has produced butchered bones, stone tools, and cave paintings. Now, all of these are, of course, though, durable materials that are much more likely to survive the ravages of time than the fragile vegetable material of a straw bed. So Lynn Wadley, the lead author of the new study and a professor of archaeology at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa, notes that during excavations between 2015 and 2019, that they were able to find the ephemeral fossilized grass in the large rock shelter that, again, has a sort of a big interior portion sheltered from the elements. The grass layer would have been quite thick, probably at least 30 centimeters thick, 12 inches, and laid on a soft, clean ash base, so it would have been as comfortable as any camp bed or haystack, she explained. Now, while excavating the cave... Wadley's team discovered a strange layer of material embedded in the floor. The archaeologists carefully cut out small chunks, wrapped them protectively in gypsum, and then sent them to a lab for further analysis. Using a scanning electron microscope and a spectrometer, the researchers analyzed the samples and conducted a phytolith analysis, which is where plant materials are extracted from soil and sediment samples. They were able to discern biobate leaf cells, prickles, stomata, and other grass structures from a member of the Panacoideae family, which includes the grass Panicum maximus, which grows wild around the cave to this day. Now, the grass was placed on top of layers of ash, which probably provided extra comfort and a clean, insulating surface, but also... We speculate that such placement of bedding, as well as that on the ashes of previously burned bedding, was deliberate because several ethnographies report that ash repels crawling insects, which cannot easily move through fine powder because it blocks their breathing and biting apparatus and eventually leaves them dehydrated. Um, So, you know, you can even buy today, um, I'm drawing a blank on what it's specifically called, um, diatomaceous, um, diatomaceous, uh, um, sand basically. And that's used as an insect repellent because it does, it blocks up their, uh, breathing apparatuses and it just makes them, um, not able to function. And so the point of that is that it's very finely, uh, grained materials, much like ash. Now, of course, they were asked if there could be other purposes for the piles, such as uh, a collection for tinder for fire. But the researchers said that the grass was placed deliberately and often over several meters, suggesting the creation of a specific place for, for sleeping and working. 
Birds make nests, and some animals sleep on grass. So this is a good question, said Wadley. The bedding layers are toward the back of the cave, out of the wind, and potentially safe from predators when fires are built in front of them. The cave is completely dry and nothing grows in it, so grass at the back of the cave was brought there. It could not grow in the interior of the cave. Now, after using the bedding for some amount of time, they would be burned and a new bed would be created. Burning grass bedding rids the campsite of pests, from rats to fleas, and cleans fusty areas, or stale areas, she explained. Fresh grass would then be brought in to create new, clean beds, and it would be possible to occupy the site for longer. Otherwise, it would have to be abandoned. Now, luckily for the researchers, this particular bed was not burned, suggesting it was the last in a chain of beds at the site, which was temporarily abandoned after its use. So again, this was a... um. This wasn't a place where necessarily people lived all year round for generations and generations and generations. It might have been a place where they lived for one particular um, season and then they moved on. And it might be that these people just didn't uh, maintain their occupation there. Um, they might have moved to another cave somewhere nearby. Um, and then at some point, people just built on top of it and it um when the cave was re-inhabited and then it became part of the um it became buried in the soil layers to be discovered later on which is very exciting because again these kind of vegetable matter uh remains are very very um are much more rare than kind of bones and uh, stone tools. Like, there's a reason that we talk about stone tools so much with early, uh, humans is because that is the most common thing that we find. Um, <laughs> because that is what was left. And most of the rest of things that the peoples would have been using were made from items that easily decay, like furs and skins and vegetable material. And so, yeah, it's very good that this was not uh, burnt. Now, burnt layers were actually found beneath this bed, which suggests that, that such bed making began early. The ash would have been a combination of material both from previously burned beds and campfires. They also found traces of camphor wood, which uh, they suspect was used as a repellent for flying insects. Now, the archaeologists also found traces of stone flakes and blade manufacturing, as well as okra particles. This suggests that the bedding was also used during the day as a comfortable place to work. Red and orange ochre would have been used as a body paint for painting cave walls and for other decorative purposes. The researchers note that the creation of such beds shows early Homo sapiens were already creating complex material goods to solve problems. It also shows that they were using fire and even the byproduct ash. In addition, Wadley notes that this shows that they had some knowledge of hygiene. Through the use of ash and medicinal plants to repel insects, we realized that they had some pharmacological knowledge, she added. Furthermore, 
they could extend their stay at favored campsites by planning ahead and cleaning them by burning fusty beds. They therefore had some basic knowledge of healthcare through practicing hygiene. Okay, let's move forward in time to talk about stone monuments created by Neolithic people. So those were Paleolithic people. And then uh, when you get to about 12,000 years ago, so basically anything before 12,000 years is Paleolithic. So anything from 200,000 plus to 12,000, that's all kind of Paleolithic. Humans spent a lot of time doing pretty much the same thing for a long time. And then around 12,000 years ago, we switch over to the Neolithic when they started to have different lithic practices or different ways that they made those stone tools that we are so used to uh, talking about and uh, seeing from them. And so in the Neolithic, we got a lot more of the monumental uh, building that we are so used to seeing um, in the present, things like Stonehenge and things like that. And so here we're talking about uh, stone monuments that are massive rectangular stone structures. And they actually might be some of the oldest monuments in the world. The structures number in the hundreds, with some being as large as a football field, uh, that's a American football field, and are found across what is now Saudi Arabia. Now, the areas were originally referred to as gates, but are now known as mustaltils, which is Arabic for rectangle. And again, I apologize for any and all mispronunciations. <laughs> Some of them date to 7,000 years ago. The Mustatil phenomena represents a remarkable development of monumental architecture, as hundreds of these structures were built in northwest Arabia, the researchers wrote in their paper. This monumental landscape represents one of the earliest large-scale forms of monumental stone structure construction anywhere in the world. And so the structures can, I think they can be compared in some sort of very broad ways to the Nazca lines, um, because they are kind of best viewed from above. So a lot of this comes out of research that was done that was basically people going up in helicopters and just flying across this really arid, very um, old volcano, uh, all um, covered in old volcanic um, um, cones area that's absolutely beautiful when you look at it from these aerial shots. Like, the area looks incredibly beautiful. It also looks incredibly arid and, like, you wouldn't want to live there, but it's a would be a lovely place to have a picture of. Uh, <laughs> um, and so they um, went, went with helicopters and they basically just did a survey of this area and found just hundreds and hundreds of different structures in this area. Uh, a lot of them actually old enough that they were actually buried by lava flows. So some of them are actually cut through or cut off by lava flows because they're that old. Um, and so that was that sort of the, the basic thing is that their best sort of visualized from the um from the air. They're not really like the Nazca lines because in the Nazca lines 
the um, way that those were created is that uh, they sort of dug away at the top layer, which is oxidized to show the sort of lighter layer beneath, whereas these structures are actually created using actual low stone walls and cairns. And so they were actually used by, they're actually created by creating uh, stacked stone walls. So a very different construction um, to the Nazca lines. Now they range in size from 49 feet to the largest, which is over 2,000 feet long. Initially, many would have had platforms on their ends uh, or on each end of the rectangle. On one such platform, researchers recovered a painting with geometric designs on it. The design is currently unique and is, quote, not currently known from other rock art contexts in the area, according to the researchers. It is quite possible that these structures would have been visually spectacular and perhaps quite extensively painted, study lead author Hugh Grucut, uh, leader of the Extreme Events Group at the Max Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology in Germany. Unfortunately, we don't really have a lot more information about these structures other than they're big and they're cool. Um, the structures were most likely used for rituals, um, which, you know, my joke about uh, rituals for uh, the the word ritual in archaeological contexts. But um, there is actually a good reason to believe this, because there really aren't a lot of artifacts beyond the walls themselves, so there's no signs of occupation. So they clearly weren't places where people came and actually lived, so they were most likely places where people would come for a very short period of time and then leave again back to wherever they were actually inhabiting. And they don't generally have specific entrances or openings. They're basically just completely walled in. So that suggests that they wouldn't have been used for anything like animal pens or um, that sort of activity. And so obviously, if they were used ritualistically, we don't know what the rituals would have entailed um, because we don't know a lot about the people of this area, unfortunately. And again, uh, they are in a very arid area at this point, and they're even actually on the sides of one of the volcanoes. And so the structures are presumed to have been created. When the structures were presumed to have been created, the area would have been wetter and more hospitable. Not hospitable, but more hospitable. <laughs> Between 10,000 and 6,000 years ago, the Arabian Peninsula saw the most recent of the Green Arabia periods when increased rainfall transformed this generally arid region, the researchers wrote in the paper, noting that the Mustatils may represent one manifestation of the increasing territoriality that developed induced by factors such as competition for grazing lands and the challenging and unpredictable environments of Arabia. Now again, despite the area being wetter, it was not actually a wet environment. This isn't like when the, in the past when the Sahara was actually had like lakes and grasslands. It's not like that. Um, so the area would still have been highly seasonal. It would have still had uh, periods of drought. So they clearly wouldn't have been able to live there full time. The paper by Brucutt et al. is an admirably detailed account of one enigmatic construction type, 
the Mustatil Rectangle, although there are several other stunning architectural patterns that reflect large-scale human cooperative ventures that have little apparent utilitarian purposes beyond social identity, social reaffirmation, and social memory, notes Gary Rolifson, an emeritus professor at Whitman College in Washington, who was not involved in the research. Now, some researchers believe that there are even older structures, including so-called kites. Now, the kites are actually thought to have been used to hunt animals. They were basically a corral with uh, several sort of corners so they could be used for people to hide and trap and slaughter animals. There are also keyhole structures, bullseyes, pendants, and other shapes. Some bullseyes have cairns in the center, which researchers believe may contain burials. And so, despite being enigmatic, though, they are incredible monuments to early habitation and organization. And so, um, I would recommend, I will try and remember to paste, to post a link on um, my Twitter to um, the pictures that are out there that you can go and visit them or else you can just uh, easily Google, obviously, um, Saudi Arabia and um, monumental architecture. Um, Though you might get some of the more um, recent stuff as well. Though, you know, um, Islamic uh, architecture is incredibly beautiful, so there's no uh, reason not to also look at that. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. And, um, it's interesting because there was a lot of prehistory stories. So one of the ones that I don't think I'll have time to get to, um, and I'd have to, uh, roll back around to it is, um, there was a new discovery of plaquettes, which are sort of, um, flat rocks that have, uh, carvings on them of things like a mastodon and a sort of bison or or maybe a ox and a horse. Uh, and those were found in, uh, the Jersey area of England and they represent, um, the newest, oldest, <laughs> um, piece of artwork found in that area. And, uh, they probably are referring to Doggerland, which, um, I assume you probably know about, but in case you don't, uh, back in this time period, uh, there was a land bridge between Europe and the, uh, British Isles, and it was called Doggerland. And so in, uh, the Neolithic era, there would have been people basically living in this, uh, piece of land that is now sunk beneath the sea. And so that's why, um, there's a lot of archaeology that's done kind of on the edges of, uh, the, the uh, North Sea, because at one point those places would have been uh, habited by Neolithic people. And so um, after um, the last uh, interglacial period, uh, obviously um, there the oceans began to rise and continued to rise, and eventually that um, area was wiped out or submerged, I should say. Okay, so let's move forward in time a bit and talk about monkeys found in a first century uh, Roman Egyptian port town. (laughs) 
So um, one of the things I have noted often is that people tend to underestimate the amount of contact between various contemporaneous ancient civilizations. I was watching a great YouTube video the other day uh, discussing various faulty logic used by, well, racists for the most part to try and downplay the technological advances and civilizations in parts of the world that are outside of Eurasia, especially Africa. And one of the things that the author pointed out was basic geography. Africa and the Americas are mostly on a north-south axis, whereas Eurasia is on an east-west axis. And so this means that Africa and the Americas have a greater amount of changes in climate and terrain, whereas most of Eurasia has a roughly similar range of climates. So you can basically go from France to China and you can roughly be in a sort of band that has very similar um, climate conditions. And obviously there are places now um, like the Taklamakan Desert and things like that. But at the time period when this was happening, that place was also wetter and people actually did live there. Um, And so, and also today people can go around and there's still people who live out there. And so it's less surprising that people would be able to flow east and west and have contact and also to extend themselves east and west rather than north and south. Um, so just as a reminder, uh, again, the, the person who quite possibly still, though obviously we have some terrifying billionaires nowadays, but the person who historically was the richest person ever, uh, was a African king. Um, and because we're talking about Egypt, I'll just note that, um, I'm not going to remember his name offhand, unfortunately, but he, uh, took a trip to Egypt at one point and he basically, as he was going through the city, was throwing out chunks of gold and he threw out so much gold to people in the streets that it actually destroyed the economy of the city of Alexandria, I believe. And they basically had an 11 year struggle with, uh, deflation and <laughs> just, uh, their, their, com- it completely destroyed their economy because people suddenly had so much wealth. <laughs> so yeah, um, the most, uh, the person with the most wealth, which of course we tend to think of as the most impressive person, uh, was an African king. Um, but anyways, Moving on, getting back to the story tonight, um, because we know that there was a lot of uh, flow east and west, this story isn't that surprising. So it turns out that monkeys have been found, monkeys from India, in fact, have been found buried in a pet cemetery in Egypt. Now, the animals were clearly buried with care and love, and thus were almost certainly pets. The animals were laid to rest in the fetal position with grave goods, including shells or a blanket. Archaeologists from the University of Warsaw's Polish Center of Mediterranean Archaeology, along with researchers from Delaware University in the United States, found the monkey skeletons in the port city of Berenice on the Red Sea. 
The team has been working at the site since 2008 and has discovered monumental fortifications, defensive walls, towers, a large subterranean complex, a temple, and the pet cemetery. Initially, the researchers assumed that the monkeys were local, because, of course, there are monkeys in Africa. However, after 3D scans and comparative analysis to other monkey bones, they realized that the skeletons belonged to two species of Indian monkeys, rhesus macaques and the slightly smaller bonnet macaques. Now, the researchers were surprised because keeping such monkeys is not written about in the ancient texts. And as we all know, the Egyptians wrote down, carved, or painted information about pretty much every aspect of Egyptian life. The reason we know so much about the Egyptians and Egyptian, uh, the Egyptians are so uh, iconic is because we actually know so much about them. <laughs> um, I mean, yes, the pyramids are also very impressive, but I think that the really cool thing about them is that we know about them. And um, as someone who is much more interested in vernacular archaeology, we know a lot about the everyday lives of everyday people, actually, even though we also know a lot about the lives of the more wealthy. And so it's kind of surprising to find something that they didn't write about. <laughs> and so uh, the researchers worked at the cemetery from 2016 to 2020 and found 16 monkeys 536 cats, 32 dogs, and one falcon, according to Marta Uspinska, a team member and an archaeologist from the Polish Academy of Sciences. The, pet, the pets most likely came from both Egyptian and Roman inhabitants of the first century port. Berenice was a de facto Roman port, although formerly in Egypt, explained Uspinska adding that Berenice was a very important port through which valuable goods from Asia, Africa, and the Middle East were brought to the empire. The animals would have taken a lot of resources to reach Egypt, and unfortunately, they didn't adapt well uh, to either the Egyptian climate or they just didn't survive the, um, the trip well, though we know at least one was um, a baby, so it must have been born on the journey there. And so we do know that most of them died young, but they didn't show any physical signs of injuries, uh, unlike some of the cats and dogs found in the cemetery. So they were clearly well-loved and pampered. Um, and so it turns out, though, that Berenice, despite being an important port, wasn't an easy place to live. Fresh water had to be brought into the city on donkeys from the nearby mountains, and basically all of its resources had to be imported, often from far away. So it's basically like a Caribbean island these days um, that still has, a lot of them still get most of their things imported uh, from the U.S. or other places. Um, and so that would not have been um, necessarily a great place to have exotic pets. <laughs> um, but, you know, they tried. And that's what's important. Because pets are awesome, even though I'm not a fan of monkeys. Uh, too many, too many, uh, connections to infectious diseases, which is, you know, this is, this is my nightmare that we're living out is, uh, the possibility of getting an infectious disease from pretty much anywhere at any time. Um, anyways, let's take a break, um, and do some show promos and some PSAs, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about something completely different. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. 
Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the lax- last glacial maximum, <laughs> or the LGM. So this is basically the official title for the last ice age, uh, which happened about 20,000 years ago. And so a University of Arizona team has calculated that the average global temperature at that time would have been around 46 degrees. Now, this will help climate scientists to better understand the relationship between today's greenhouse gases uh, and how they affect average global temperature. 
We have a lot of data about this time period because it has been studied for so long, said Jessica Tierney, associate professor in the U Arizona's Department of Geosciences and lead author of the paper which was published in Nature. But one question science has long wanted the answers to is simple. How cold was the Ice Age? This shows that global temperatures were 11 degrees cooler than today. Global temperature average was 57 degrees Fahrenheit for the 20th century. In North America and Europe, the the most northern parts were covered in ice and were extremely cold. Even here in Arizona, there was big cooling, Thierry said. But the biggest cooling was in high latitudes, such as the Arctic, where it was about 25 degrees Fahrenheit colder than today. Now, the findings are in keeping with what we know about climate change. The poles are, the poles in higher latitudes are colder or hotter much more quickly than in equatorial areas. They're much more quickly affected. Climate models predict that the high latitudes will get warmer faster than low latitudes, Tierney said. When you look at future projections, it's it gets really warm over the Arctic. That's referred to as polar amplification. Similarly, during the LGM, we find the reverse pattern. Higher latitudes are just more sensitive to climate change and will remain so going forward. And unfortunately, we know that um, very much so at this point. And so this has been used for calculating the, uh, in order to understand better the um, concept of climate sensitivity, which is how much global temperatures shift due to atmospheric carbon. Tierney and her colleagues found that for every doubling of atmospheric carbon, the temperature will increase by 6.1 degrees Fahrenheit, which puts it in the middle of current climate model predictions. During the last ice age, atmospheric carbon dioxide was just 180 parts per million. Before the Industrial Revolution, they'd risen to 280 parts per million. And today, we're currently at 415 parts per million. The Paris Agreement wanted to keep global warming to no larger than 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit over pre-industrial levels. But the carbon dioxide levels increasing the way they are, it would be extremely difficult to avoid more than 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit of warming, Tierney said. We already have about 2 degrees Fahrenheit under our belts, but the less but the less warm we get, the better, because the Earth system really does respond to changes in carbon dioxide. And so they basically used ocean plankton fossils, uh, which they were able to run a program on uh, the information they got from them that turned it into sea surface temperatures. They then combined that data with climate model simulations of the LGM using a weather forecasting technique called data assimilation. What happens in a weather office is they measure the temperature, pressure, humidity, and use these measurements to update a forecasting model and predict the weather. Here, we use the Boulder, Colorado-based National Center for Atmospheric Research climate model to produce a hindcast of the LGM. And then we update this hindcast with the actual data predict to predict what the climate was like. The next step is to model warmer periods in the Earth's pasts. If we can construct past warm climates, then we can start to answer important questions about how the Earth reacts to really high carbon dioxide levels and improve our understanding of what future climate change might hold.
So that's cool that they can find better models. Not the greatest results, but better models are always a good thing. Um, always helping us find out more information. But we're going to move on now to a story that is much more help- hopeful. Um, well, uh, relatively, let's put it that way. So there are definitely researchers and engineers creating new and novel ways to curb some of the waste that helps fuel our climate change problems. We talked about some of them a couple of weeks ago, and um, I found this story and I thought it was really interesting. Scientists led by Nanyang Technological University in Singapore had developed a way to extract and reuse precious metals from spent lithium-ion batteries using fruit peel waste. So this is an absolute win-win type of invention. The team used orange peels, which were able to recover the precious metals from batteries efficiently. They were able to make new batteries from the recovered metals while creating a very small amount of waste. The researchers specifically targeted a waste to, a waste to resource approach in order to tackle both food and electronic waste in order to help develop a circular economy which aims for zero waste. Currently, there is an estimated 1.3 billion tons of food waste and 50 million tons of e-waste produced each year globally. Conventional recycling for batteries involves heating them to over 900 degrees Fahrenheit in order to smelt the metals, which emit hazardous gases. Alternatively, processes involving either strong acids or weak acids combined with hydrogen peroxide are being explored but both of these processes would still produce dangerous waste byproducts. Just by itself, hydrogen peroxide is hazardous and unstable. Professor Madhavi Srinivasan, co-director of the NTU Singapore CEA Alliance for Research in Circular Economy, or the NTU SCARES Lab, (laughs) said... Current industrial recycling processes of e-waste are energy-intensive and emit harmful pollutants and liquid waste, pointing to an urgent need for eco-friendly methods as the amount of e-waste grows. Our team has demonstrated that it is possible to do so with biodegradable substances, which is huge. Now, the findings were published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Industrial approaches for recycling battery waste using hydrometallurgy, which is using water as a solvent for extraction, combined with an acid or other chemicals, as we mentioned, have been explored as an alternative to smelting. But in this process, the batteries are first shredded and then crushed to form what is euphemistically referred to as black mass, which of course doesn't sound great, but... It gets better as we go along. (laughs) The mass is then processed by dissolving it in a mix of acid or chemicals under heat and then letting the metals precipitate out of the solution. Now, while better than conventional processes of smelting, the use of large amounts of strong chemicals can produce secondary hazards 
according to Assistant Professor Dalton Tay of the NTU School of Material Sciences and Engineering and the School of Biological Sciences. He notes, In Singapore, a resource-scarce country, this process of urban mining to extract valuable metals from all kinds of discarded electronics becomes very important. With this method, we not only tackle the problems of resource depletion by keeping these precious metals in use as much as possible, but also the problem of e-waste and food waste accumulations, both a growing global crisis. And so instead of using such harsh chemicals, the team found that a combination of oven-dried orange peels ground into powder and citric acid extracted well, from citrus fruits, can achieve the same goal. They found it extracted around 90% of cobalt, lithium, nickel, and manganese from spent lithium-ion batteries, which is a comparable number to hydrogen peroxide processing. And of course, all of those metals have problematic uh, mining uh, technology associated with them. So not only is it just the waste from um, recycling that is a problem, but actually, if you can't recycle them, having to pull them out of the actual ground is a really a bad process. It's it's very messy and environmental environmentally uh, degrading. And so any kind of uh, recycling we can do is extremely important. Tay explained, the key lies in the cellulose found in orange peel, which is converted into sugars under heat during the extraction process. These sugars enhance the recovery of metals from battery waste. Naturally occurring antioxidants found in orange peel, such as flavonoids and phenolic acids, could have contributed to this enhancement as well. And again, importantly, the solid waste produced from this process is non-toxic. They then created new batteries, which showed a similar charge capacity to newly manufactured ones. And so they're continuing to explore ways to optimize the creation of these new batteries. And they are also looking, obviously, at how this might be scaled up to make it a fully uh, feasible industrial process. Professor Ma Ma Medhavi who is also from NTU's School of Materials Science and Engineering, said, This waste-to-resource approach could also potentially be extended to other types of cellulose-rich fruits, fruit and vegetable waste, as well as lithium-ion battery types such as lithium-iron phosphate and lithium-nickel-manganese-cobalt oxide. So this would help to make great strides towards the new circular economy of e-waste, and power our lives in a greener and more sustainable manner. So that is a pretty excellent story. Um, I'm very excited by the prospect that you could actually take these um, batteries that are otherwise going to be either put in a landfill or recycled using really processes that are barely better than creating them new, and use something like orange peels. That's so cool. And very uplifting. 
Uh, there are definitely ways in which engineering and uh, science can help contribute to making the world a better place. All right, let's finish tonight with a completely different and kind of wild story. Um, a specific region of the brain known for recognizing faces has been found to respond to faces even by people who were born blind. Neuroscientist Nancy Canwisher, the Walter A. Rosenblith Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience and a member of MIT's McGovern Institute for Brain Research, along with others, discovered a region of the brain near the base of the skull that is called the fusiform face area over 20 years ago. This part of the brain responds most distinctly when a person is looking at faces. In their new finding, Canwisher and colleagues have discovered that the fusiform face area, or FFA, of the brain also lights up when people who have been born, who are, have been blind since birth, touch a 3D model of a face with their hands. This suggests that vision is not necessary for the development of a preference for faces. That doesn't mean that visual input doesn't play a role in sighted subjects. It probably does, she says. What we showed here is that visual input is not necessary to develop this particular patch in the same location with the same selectivity for faces. That was pretty astonishing. Studying people who were born blind helps researchers to understand questions about how specialization evolves in the brain. Not only is it of interest in facial recognition, but in many parts of the brain. This is part of a broader question that scientists and philosophers have been asking themselves for hundreds of years about where the structure of the mind and brain come from. She said, to what extent are we products of experience and to what extent do we have built-in structures? This is a version of that question asking about the particular role of visual experience in constructing the face area. The new study was informed by a 2017 study from Belgium where congenitally blind subjects were scanned with fMRI as they listened to a variety of sounds, some related to faces, such as laughing or chewing. They found that the FFA responded more to sounds associated with the face. In the new study, the MIT team wanted to measure responses from tactile experiences, so they created a ring of 3D objects that included faces, hands, chairs, and mazes, and rotated them so that each one could be handled as the subject was scanned. They first tested sighted people and found that the area near the FFA was active when subjects touched faces more than other objects. The signal was weaker than if they'd been looking at faces, but that was to be expected. We know that people engage in visual imagery, and we know from prior studies that visual imagery can activate the FFA. So the fact that you see the response with touch in a sighted person is not shocking because they're visually imagining what they're feeling. They then performed the same test on 15 subjects who reported being blind from birth. They found that they had the same amount of signal boost in the FFA area. When we saw it in the first few subjects, it was really shocking because no one had seen individual face-specific activation in the fusiform gyrus in blind subjects previously, said Anne said N. Aperva Ratan Murti, an MIT postdoc and the lead author of the study, which appeared in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The experiment allowed them to test several processes 
several processes on how this connection might have arisen in this particular part of the brain. The first suggested that the FFA region received information from the fovea, the center of the retina, and as we tend to focus on faces at the center of our visual field, it would make sense that this region would process that information. However, obviously the new research about blind subjects makes this hypothesis unlikely. The second hypothesis was that the area of the brain simply prefers curved objects. The researchers tested this by giving the subjects a variety of shapes, including cubes, spheres, spheres, and eggs, and found that the FFA did not respond to any of them, which again suggests this is not the answer. What they did find was evidence for a third hypothesis, which is that the connections made to other parts of the brain is the key. They were able to measure the, quote, connectivity fingerprint of the FFA, which maps other areas of the brain that are excited at the same time in both sighted and blind patients. They then used this data to train the computer model to predict the exact location of the brain's selective response based on the FFA connectivity fingerprint and found that when they trained it to using data from sighted patients, it could predict the results from blind patients and vice versa. They found connections to the frontal and parietal lobes, which are involved in high-level processing of sensory information to be the most likely areas for predicting activity in the FFA. It's suggested of this very interesting story that the brain wires itself up in development not just by taking perceptual information and doing statistics on the input and allocating patches of brain according to some kind of broadly agnostic statistical procedure, Ken Wisher said. Rather, there are endogenous constraints in the brain present at birth, in this case in the form of connections to higher-level brain regions, and these connections are perhaps playing a causal role in its development. So basically, it means that there are bits of your brain that are already wired in such a way that they will pick up certain kinds of information rather than the brain just deciding to uh, figure out all of these things by themselves. <laughs> and so, yeah, that is super fascinating. Um, I love information like that where it's just surprising to even the uh, scientists. Okay, that is all the time we have for tonight. I do appreciate you listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and I will be back next week. Have a good week. And please, again, remember, um, if you can, to uh, support the um, victims of Hurricane Laura. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.